0: What a joy to be back with you today. I so appreciated the music. Having our children playing the bells with the hymns made singing so much more fun. Don't you like singing when there... Well, I like it in general, but I really like it when there's uh, accompaniment with that. So that was a joy. want to thank our bell choir and Bev Bell for uh, leading that. And uh, it was what a children's story, huh? I have just, just one note to make. Uh, it is one thing to do a, a courtesy, I'm going to let you cut in front of me thing in traffic in some other state. Um, but that is a formula for disaster. I have decided that that is no longer a Christian kindness on my part, um, but a hazard. What everybody expects is for me to pass them on the right at a high rate of speed and not let them in. Because when I slow down, as you were suggesting, break, I blink my lights, I wave at them, I say, come on over, they slow down with me, (laughs) with their blinker on, and keep looking in their rearview mirror as if I've just flipped them off or something. And finally, seconds before the off-ramp, they either then finally creep over and make me slow down even more and regret deeply my kindness to them, (laughs) Um, or they... they I have to speed up and finally pass them on the right, and my gesture was for in vain. So just for those of you who aren't from this area or L.A., know that that's the right thing to do. (laughs) And that when somebody cuts you off, that's just the normal pattern of things. They're really not trying to uh, make life difficult for you. And then I just wanted to say, uh, the wizards, they look like royalty today. And, and that I, I don't, you know, I don't usually point out anybody's appearance, but I say that only to highlight that this is African Heritage Month, and this coming Tuesday or this this coming Monday is Martin Luther King Day. We have a, Tuesday. It's fast. Okay. Well, what we have is um, Claremont has a lecture this coming Tuesday on this topic, and so that's just part of what's swimming around in my head, but it's a, a celebration of this heritage and. Uh, Anyway, I just wanted to to mention it because it's something we all can be mindful of because we all share in it in one way or another. Uh, It's it's amazing how intertwined all of human history is and how related all human beings are uh, by geography, by circumstance, uh, even by unfortunate things like military campaigns and so forth. But we're all deeply connected And it's great to celebrate with uh, one another as we think about what it means to be a child of God in a particular cultural context. So I just wanted to say something about that, too. I grew up with a very sort of straightforward, it seemed to me, simple sort of understanding of what it meant to have hope in the second coming of Christ, Now, I have crossed the 50 mark, so I have to admit that was some time ago that I was a child thinking about all this. And for those of you who have been around a long time, you've probably heard me reference the gasoline crisis of 72, 73, uh, clear up over 50 cents a gallon, lines around the corner of the, the thing. And the evangelists who were pastoring my church kept saying it's a sure sign of the Lord's imminent return. Now, I have, through most of my professional career, I admit, taken some uh, exception to evangelists who've come in and said, well, you see, we we know God's coming is around the corner because uh, I think it was in 1798, Eric helped me out, the stars fell, and then when was the moon darkened? Was that 18... 36 or something? Yeah. Um, Just think about how long ago that was. And then we have the calculations of the 2300 days and uh, Uriah Smith's work on on why the great disappointment happened, and we have uh, the cleansing of the temple being, or the sanctuary being identified as what happened in 1844. And even that, as I think about it, is 172, 173 years ago. And I know that for God to reach wherever heaven is to, to be with us here must take a little bit of time. But I think somehow he must have a shortcut. And I just can't work out how those things that happened so long ago now could be signs of his coming. And then, well, I know how they are. It says so right in Matthew, right? You know your scripture too. Matthew 23 says these things explicitly. So I know how it, it's a sign of the coming. But he goes on to describe earthquakes. Yeah, we've had those. Doesn't mention tsunamis, but those are a consequence of earthquakes. Wars and rumors of wars. But did you ever get to the point that I did? Like somewhere along the line, you realized that part of the fact that it feels like there are more wars and rumors of more wars is that we're now internationally connected. It's media. Think about it. If you knew only Santa Clarita and maybe a couple of neighboring towns, you got word from Lancaster occasionally, something drifted up from Los Angeles, but let's say there was no electronic media, it was only word of mouth and people walking or taking a horse from place to place. If you were kind of landlocked here in Santa Clarita, how would you feel about the world right now? You, You wouldn't know about anything happening in Thailand or anything happening in Syria, or the Mediterranean. You wouldn't have any news from Washington, D.C., except as it came laboriously from long, long, long ways away. You wouldn't be connected to any of this, and it would not you're not at war here in Santa Clarita. What would wars and rumors of wars mean to you in a place if you were landlocked here? So somewhere along the line, I became aware... That the fact that I'm mega connected, that every morning I get up, I go to my computer, I can't escape the fact that Yahoo News is right there in my face. Somebody's killed somebody. There's been a shooting in such and such a town. Somebody stormed a theater, a club, killed seven, nine, 42, 52 people. That there was a refugee boat in the Mediterranean filled with Syrians that was capsized and 500 people drowned. Uh, that there was an airplane crash in such and such a place if we want to talk about the rapidity of signs of his coming, they're everywhere now. Only would I know or would I care if I weren't connected globally. And so this is the kind of stuff that just goes through my head. I don't know what goes through your head, but this is the sort of stuff that goes through my head sometimes. So why am I telling this story? I'm sort of talking about my childhood and my understanding of what it meant that Jesus was coming soon. Because today, this weekend, we're in a season after Advent, a season after Christmastide called Epiphany. And not that that's terribly significant for Adventists per se, but today is the presentation of the Lord. And I think, okay, I'm reading about something that I would normally associate with Christmas, Luke 2. Uh, Malachi, some of these, these verses are things that we read around Christmas time sometimes. And I think about Jesus coming as a baby and what that really meant. And then I think about what it means for him to come a second time and how complex things feel to me now as an adult compared to how they felt to me even as an adult 20 years ago or as a child 40 years ago. And I wonder if we collectively, if I personally, if we collectively still think of the second coming of Christ in terms of deliverance and hope in the way that we did 40 years ago. If you've been an Adventist that long, or Christian that long, or if we still think of it in the same, same sorts of terms. And so I want to explore that just a little bit this morning. We, one of the things I love about our church and the, the worship we have together is that it involves lots of scripture. Maybe that's too much sometimes for some of you I don't know. but I love that about our church. We every week we get into the word and so I want to start with our psalm today that was your call to worship." Psalm 84. I'm going to just do a little exposition on some of these that we've read this morning and then try to tie this theme together for us uh, as we think about how we're going to live out of these words going forward. I'm going to do what I always do in the interest of time because this has been read, I'm not going to reread it for you, but I'm going to skip through some of the ideas by way of commentary. In verse 1, we have the psalmist exclaiming, the house of the Lord is a place of beauty because the Lord Almighty dwells there. He extends the metaphor and says, my soul yearns even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. The yearning of the psalmist's heart is to be in the presence of God. The yearning of his heart is to be with God in his dwelling. Emmanuel, God with us. God habiting with us. We living in him, with him. he draws an analogy from nature and points to the sparrow who may even build its nest close to the altar. And he says, blessed are you who dwell, blessed are those who dwell in your house because theirs is the privilege of forever praising you. Now, if you read Revelation 4, 11, 22, different places around in Revelation, you find choruses of people praising God the redeemed. And one of the things that will be our privilege when we think about what it means to be with God forever, our privilege will be to sing his praise forever. Our privilege will be to recount the story of his mighty deeds. Our privilege will be to forever remember what God has done and the joy of being in God's presence his dwelling, his place, his home. We living in him, with him, through him, praising him. Blessed are those who strengthen you. They go on a pilgrimage and they go through this place called Bacha. And this is a place of pools, a place of refreshment. Their commentators go two different directions on this. This could be, An an idea that the the blessed are going through the desert, but they find pools of refreshment. Another thought is that this is balsam trees, weeping trees. And these trees weep, and it's this sort of uh, metaphor for being able to walk through sorrow into joy. Either way... The righteous are able by their very presence to turn desert into places of springs and autumn rains then come and offer, also cover and add to the, the beauty and the moisture, the refreshment. Seven says they go from strength to strength until each appears before God in God's home, Zion. And then he prays. Bless us, look on us with favor. Better a day with you than a thousand days elsewhere. I would rather be the doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. In other words, I'd rather sit in that little hovel by the gate of God than have my own place. For the Lord is a sun and shield and bestows favor. The Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts you. Our psalmist is talking about the power, compelling vision of being with God in God's dwelling place connected to him. Is that clear enough? So when we think about what it means for Christ to come the first time, we're looking at God making his dwelling with us, right? That's what the incarnation is about, the condescension. God with us, he becomes one of us, making his dwelling with us. His home is our home and he works and lives among us. And then the second coming is about the opposite. It's about us going to be with him, now living in the home he's prepared, being with him, singing his praise, recounting his great deeds, remembering what he's done as he came to us to show us who the Father really was and the love of God for us. So this praise of Psalm is the, is the setting for our anticipation of God's coming, whether we look at it as the first coming or whether we look at it as the second coming. Our purpose is the same. It's being with our God, and what a joy that is, to be with Him in His courts, in His presence. Malachi. The very word Malachi means my messenger. So it is an interesting thing that it says, I will send my messenger. I will send Malachi, who will prepare the way before me. And suddenly, the Lord whom you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And an angel appeared to Mary and said, Fear not, for behold, I am with you. And you have found favor, and you will have a child, and you will name him Jesus. The interesting thing about the first coming, as we've explored many times before, and, and other pastors I'm sure have explored with you too, is that Jesus' first coming didn't meet expectations. Recall in Scripture that they argued about where he was from. He came from Nazareth, but nothing good can come from Nazareth. And that doesn't meet the prophecy, right? Surely he cannot be the Messiah, for he comes from Nazareth. Well, it was, I think, Egypt before that. And then before that, Bethlehem. And Bethlehem did fit the prophecy, as you recall. But even though he made signs and wonders, and even though he spoke with authority and taught things that people had never, never seen before, even though the Spirit of God was upon him, even though he showed all the evidences, people debated about whether he could be the Messiah because he hadn't come in their minds from the place they expected. He didn't meet the criteria they were looking for. He wasn't everything they expected. And their cynicism, their pessimism, their critical thinking, it was all on. Jesus comes suddenly, unexpectedly. And then Malachi says, who can endure it? Who can stand? Because he's going to purify Israel. He's going to purify not only Israel, he's going to purify the priesthood of Israel, the dwelling place of God. And he's going to purify the country. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to God as in days gone by. No more idolatry. He's going to destroy the high places. No more false gods. No more Corrupt government. No more fallen priests. What's kind of fun about Malachi here is that you think about other places in Scripture, and the, the Bible says that he would make of us a nation of priests and kings. And priests would be of the line of Aaron, or Levites, or Christ we know was of the line of Melchizedek. So if we're priests, this text applies to us. It's going to purge us, going to purify us, going to refine us as gold or silver in the fire. Who can withstand the day of his coming? And what's absolutely marvelous about this passage is that it not only refers to this first coming, this presentation of Christ as a babe in the temple, and the affirmation of all the prophecy that went before. But what's really interesting is it hints at the second coming as well, for he will be a refiner's fire. And who can stand? great base arias of the Messiah come to mind. When he comes, he not only makes all things new, but he comes as a refiner's fire, purifying, cleansing, cleaning, making spiritual Israel and spiritual Judah's sacrifices relevant and acceptable once again. This relates to Hebrews two fourteen to 18, which was also read. Thank you, Terry. Christ shared in our humanity so that by his death, he could break the power of the devil who holds the power of death over us and free all of us who are held in slavery because of our fear of death. He has been made like us, fully human in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he suffered when he was tempted and he's able to help those who are being tempted. I take great great joy in that passage because one of the things that was driven into my childhood was that somehow if I didn't become... Perfect like Jesus. When the day came I wouldn't be ready, I would be lost. I think I told you I remember when I was I think nine years old and I had a dream. And I dreamt in my dream that Jesus was coming again. And it looked just like the picture books. And clouds and the angels and the bright light and it was coming. But what was really wild was that I was down in the basement of my house and two stories above, I could still see the sky. It was as if the house had become transparent. And I fell backward into a, you know, a laundry basket. Thankfully, there were clothes in it. It didn't hurt to fall backward into that. I fell back into it, stunned and frightened, because at nine years old, I thought, I'm not good enough, I'm never going to make it. And some days, even at 50 plus, I still feel the same way. I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. Never going to make it. I'm part of what needs to be refined right out. I'm not worthy. And this passage tells us that we have a sympathetic priest-king who knows our struggles and how we suffer with temptation and suffer from the sins that we, we fall to. And he has empathy and he has pity. And he hasn't come simply to judge and destroy but to save. He's looking for a people. And he advocates for us. And so, this one who becomes uh, the refining fire and the judge, and this figure of power and salvation and authority, also becomes this figure of humanity and advocacy and hope and grace. God with us, dwelling with us. And now anticipating and inviting us to be prepared to dwell with Him forever. The beautiful passage. Short and beautiful and descriptive in such rich ways. He is the priest who purifies the Levites. And not just the Levites of old. He purifies us as a nation of priests and kings. And so that brings us to the time of purification, which fortunately for Mary was a lot shorter because she'd had a boy than it would be if she'd had a girl. Dreadful to think of in today's cultural terms. They went to Jerusalem to present Jesus to the Lord and to consecrate him And to make an offering. And there was one looking. One. One old man who had read all the prophecies. One old man who had begged God for a vision of what would come. One old man who every fiber of his being was set on the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. When would Jesus come? He didn't know his name was Jesus. But as we know, Jesus is the Greek for Yeshua, Joshua, which means the Lord saves. When would the salvation of the Lord come? And Simeon has received confirmation by the Spirit that he will not die until he has seen God's salvation. And as the babe is placed in his arms, as he sees it, the Spirit speaks and he knows. This is the child. This is the one on whom God's favor has rested. This is the one who is come to make his dwelling with us. And he prophesies. He can't help it. He thanks God and says, Now I can die in peace, for I've seen your salvation, a light for the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Your salvation for all humanity is here before my eyes. Mary and Joseph marveled. He blessed them and said, this child will cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and will be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Welcoming the divine will not be easy for you. What does he mean when he says the child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the hearts of many will be revealed? I think he's talking about how people expected things to happen and expected things to come. How was it that they were to recognize that this was indeed the babe, the Messiah? Many turned their back on this event. Many said it isn't He. And there were those who did see Jesus and did see in Him the Messiah and recognize Him as such. What does it mean? As there were people not prepared for or aware of who Jesus was or what he was going to be as he came the first time, there will be people who aren't aware, aren't prepared for, aren't looking for the signs of when he comes a second time. It's frightening to think about, given our name, Adventist, people who look forward in our context, not to the first coming, we look back on that with joy and gratitude, but we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. What a tragedy if we should miss it somehow. I don't mean the event. I know you know, and I know every eye will see him as the east is from the west, so it'll be revealed. But I'm, I'm talking about the anticipation, the lead up, the build, build up to. It's not just Simeon but there is an old woman too. Someone who had been a widow for a very long time and had made God's home her home. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. She came up to them and she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child To all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, she confirmed the prophecy. In her own way, she too acknowledged the Messiah that had come. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Is he still our present hope? this child who came so long ago? Or have we lost sight? The world is now so complex, it's nothing like when it was 1972 and the gas shortage was there and people were telling me, oh, Jesus is going to come soon. Mercy, 50 cents a gallon. No, it's a different age. You know the news as well as I do. Just the last two weeks been extraordinary in terms of democracy and process and who we think of ourselves as being in a nation, whatever your perspective. World events are moving so so rapidly. Iran now has nuclear testing going on. North Korea has launched intercontinental ballistic missiles and they have the nuclear option. Crazy people are ruling nations. We have dramatic examples of degradation on our planet. just, Just take two examples and I don't want to pick on any one, but... Look at, if you've ever ever studied it, look at the beauty of some places that still have their forests and their trees, that they haven't degraded their environment. And then look at places where they have stripped away the forests or mined, strip mined the, the land. You say, well, we've got to earn a living. It's got to be about economics somewhere. it's Yeah, we need to make a living. But when we destroy our home, our dwelling place, where do we go? What is there to sustain anything? We live in a time of of radical injustice. Radical injustice. People suffering at at levels that I, I, I can't imagine ever happening in history before. Partly because our population is bigger than it's ever been before. Of the seven and a half billion people on the planet, it was just released in the news the other day that eight of the wealthiest people in North America own as much as the poorest 3.6 billion people on the planet. For those of you who are with me in Israel, we had an interesting revelation. They talked about various archaeological levels of the old city. And they noted that when the wealthy had the big, big, big homes and the poor were pushed into the crevices and corners, Israel suffered. It didn't do well. We see this repeated throughout history. Whenever the economic gap is so huge, the injustice level is so high, the suffering on the low end is so great. It's not sustainable. So I can see you saying, okay, pastor, I get it. Land the plane here. What are you you trying to get at? Enough politics. What I'm getting at is this. I don't know what the mechanisms are going to look like that bring us to the edge and to the last day. And I don't know when He's going to appear, except that I won't be prepared for it. It won't be a time convenient for me. It won't be what I'm expecting, when I'm expecting. It's going to come at a time, I think, peace and prosperity. Hallelujah. I don't know whether His coming will be driven from economic or uh, ecological factors or uh, something else. I don't, I don't right now see any evidence that the Pope is going to stand up and be able to universally control uh, religion and life as we had speculated in the 70s. I do see evidence that we're in monetary, we're headed toward monetary uh, crises and issues, difficult times. But I wonder if all that really, really matters given the question I'm asking today. My question today is, given the complexity, the things that fit the scenario we were given as children, those of us who are 50 and older, versus what's unfolding, as we think about it all, my question is, are we still looking for this Messiah? Are we still looking for this coming Christ? I hope so. Because if Christ is not our present hope, given the challenges that we face globally, nationally, in terms of race relations, in terms of ecology, in terms of food, food crises and diversity, when we think about every level of challenge that we face, is Christ still our present hope? I think that's what defines our future right there. Somehow through all this people of God, we need to be looking and listening, not just with Scripture and through Scripture, but we need to seek the filling of the Spirit because that is what enabled Simeon and Anna in the temple to look upon a baby and see a king. It was that spiritual vision that was given them that enabled them to look through the times and look through the poorness of Mary and Joseph, look through the circumstances and say, this is the one. We've waited for him. I want to invite us all today to be a people that continue to look for the hope and hope in a Jesus who will be coming to not just be with us, but to take us to be with Him. That God may continue to be dwelling with us and we will find our home and our place ultimately with Him in His courts now and forever. May God bless you. Amen.